Amen. Please be seated. Please take out the insert that is in your bulletin, and if you don't have one, look on to your neighbors. You will get the most out of this time of study and analysis if you are able to see the words as they are sung on the selections that we uh, hear sung. I will only be able to play seven of the songs on these sheets. There are 53 different songs that Handel wrote, taking Charles Jennon's scriptural arrangement, uh, and he makes 53 different songs uh, that we call Messiah, that has been called Messiah. And it's beloved at this time of the year, especially even though its first singing was around Easter time. And it wasn't especially made for a Christmas celebration. It's just become that over these last 270 years. And so what we have before us is the second part of this sermon on these scripture passages, the biblical message of Handel's Messiah. But Messiah is broken up into three parts. The first part, which we spent most of last week looking at, have the prophecies of Jesus' coming to save us from our sins. The problem of sin, God's answer to send Christ, in the build-up towards him coming, and then the realization of his birth. Then we started part two. Part two is where we are today, at least where we begin. This is Jesus is now here and going to do the work of redemption. And he goes to the cross and suffers greatly for his people. And though he does this great work, people still laugh him to scorn. They still, they still deride him for his work on the cross. And nations even rise up against him. But we see the kingdom of God, when Jesus rises again, begins to build despite the opposition, and eventually God crushes down the opposition, and Jesus is declared who he is, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Then the third section, the last part of Handel's Messiah, celebrates the reality, the practical reality, that because Jesus is Lord, we can have total confidence in life and in death, because he is Lord of both. And he overthrows the real fear we have in death, because he overcomes it, and we have surety in him for all of eternity. The overthrow of death. It's a hymn of thanksgiving that ends this great masterpiece by Handel. Hear now God's word. I will read the very last scripture lesson in this, number 53, which is Revelation 5, 12 through 13. And then we will begin on the other side of the page, working again through this wonderful story of redemption. Hear God's word. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, And hath redeemed us to God by his blood to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the Almighty One. And as we consider the message of your word, which is the message of Jesus Christ, Reveal your glory afresh that all flesh may see together and say in humble praise, glory to God in the highest. Hallelujah to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his own blood. Worthy is he to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. So we have begun part two of Handel's Messiah, Jennings gave Handel the words, the scriptural arrangement in 1740, and it wasn't but a year later that it was first performed. 24 days, Handel stayed in his flat in England and wrote Messiah as we have it before us. 
And so as we listen and as I read, let's follow closely the scriptural message. It's a wonderfully beautiful depiction of highlight passages, a depiction of, of the King Jesus doing the work on the cross, having that work accepted by God, being declared the Lord of Lords, and then building his kingdom by giving his church his word in the propagation of his word. And then finally, this overthrow of death that we can all look forward to in the midst of the pain and the suffering that goes on now, the eternity that far outlasts these light and momentary afflictions. We await for, because worthy is the lamb who was slain, and then brings us into this place of glory with God the Father forever and ever. And so this story unfolds wonderfully by these highlighted passages. If you see number 27, we left off at 26. We are now at the crucifixion of Jesus. In in this particular verse in Psalm 22, verse 7 and verse 8, they're listed. These are Psalms of David written a thousand years before the time of Jesus on the cross. The very words that Jesus quotes on the cross, a picture of Messiah to come. And all they that see him laugh him to scorn. They shoot out their lips and shake their heads saying, he trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him if he delight in him. So their words of derision are actually words that come true, that Jesus is delighted in by God. God loves him and does raise him again. Even though these mocking statements are meant to put him down, they actually fulfill in Christ being raised again after he dies. But Psalm 22 is a very difficult picture of what Jesus goes through for us. Let's listen to this Psalm 22, verse 7 in song. Him to Thank you. 
did not deliver Jesus from the cross, we could not be saved if he did not go to the cross with our sins. But God did deliver him from death because he delighted in his son. And the resurrection itself proves God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. It's not good enough just to have another martyr who dies for a cause. That does us no good. We have to have one who defeats death. And that's what this begins to build up towards and celebrate. But before we get there, we have to see the pain that Jesus underwent for us, the suffering he went through for us. In Psalm 69, verse 20, you see at number 29, thy rebuke have broken his heart. The rebuke of God the Father towards him because of the sin that he bore, our sin, the Father turns away from him for a time of his wrath being poured out on him. He is full of heaviness, the psalmist says. He looked for some to have pity on him, but there was no man, neither found he any to comfort him. Not even God would bring comfort to the son at this time where he had to pay for our sins. Lamentations, a book of the Old Testament written against the backdrop of the fall of the people of God and their sin and God's discipline upon them. This verse is taken to to mean something profound about what Jesus underwent and felt. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto his sorrow. As bad as you can feel, as much grief as you can have, as much mourning you can go through, and it's significant and it's great and it's huge. It's not as bad as the sorrow the son felt taking the sins of his people upon himself and then having his father turn away from him as his wrath was poured out on him and the earth grew dark and he paid for our sins and cries out, why have you forsaken me? Because the father for that time did forsake him. It's the only way we could have our sins paid for. But it doesn't stop there. It builds up towards Jesus' being raised again, which is the ultimate proof that God accepts his sacrifice. You know, of all the questions I would have for Handel about this work, why didn't he make one climactic song about the resurrection? There are several crescendos throughout, but why not the resurrection? And I believe what he's trying to do, what he might say, is that he's building up towards what the result of the resurrection is. Because Jesus really is who he has said he is, he then builds his kingdom as a king would, with no one stopping him, building to an eternal kingdom, not a slow, small, and temporary one. So Isaiah 53 starts to forecast Jesus' rising again. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of thy people he was stricken. Psalm 16, verse 10, But thou didst not leave his soul in hell, nor didst thou suffer thy, one, thy holy one to see corruption. He didn't leave him dead. He raises him again. And then we go from this wonderful servant psalm in Psalm 22, the picture of suffering Messiah, to a kingly psalm, one that's about the inauguration of a king, Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Look at what it says. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. This is him rising again, taking his spot as king. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, so strong he defeats death even. The Lord, mighty in battle. What battle is greater than the one against death? No one beats death except for Christ, the mighty one in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The full authority of King Jesus displayed in this psalm and as a result of his resurrection from the dead. Let's hear Psalm 24, 7 through 10 in song. (laughs) 
think about this. There are many, many kings who may be even called glorious kings, but how many are kings of glory itself? Now, this is a depiction of the greatest king ever. It's a picture of the king who will then establish his kingdom and he will expand his kingdom. And it may look on the outside like that's not happening, but the reality is if you track from the time of Jesus' resurrection and now, there are far more people who claim the name of Christ in relationship to all the people on the earth than ever before. And it continues to move. And there will always be those who will try to rise up against and they'll rage against God, but God's king will still, through his people and his word, bring people to himself and grow his kingdom. And it's a promise of God. Really, it's for us to be privileged enough to be part of what he's doing. It's not if he'll do it, it's how can we be part of what he's doing? It's all about the movement of God through his king, Jesus, the Messiah, doing this. And there are references now, two simple verses from Hebrews 34 and 35, the lessons in Messiah, that talk about the superiority of Jesus in just this way. It says in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Hebrews, unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Angels were as powerful as they could be. They were agents of God. They were servants of God. They could overpower man in any way they'd want, any way God wanted them to. But God never says to the angels who are powerful, you're my son. He only says that to Christ, who's superior to the angels. In fact, Hebrews, the whole book, is about the utter superiority of Jesus over everything, the angels included. Verse 6, let all the angels of God worship him. So the angels who are created to serve God and worship God are now told to worship Christ, which is a clear depiction of the deity of Jesus, his Godship, his being the king. Psalm 68, verse 18. Thou art gone up on high. Thou hast led captivity captive and received gifts for men. Yea, even from thine enemies that the Lord God may dwell among them. See, what happens now is the, the expansion of the kingdom. King Jesus is now giving gifts to his people so that they might share the word of Christ that people would come and the kingdom would grow. How does he do this? By getting a bunch of talented people to get people saved? By preachers? No. Look at what is quoted here in Psalm 68, verse 11. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of preachers. Lots of them. Preachers are a dime a dozen. But the word has authority. And this is one of the greatest examples of text painting in all of music. This song that we'll listen to in a moment. This is Handel taking a verse that says, the Lord gave the word, great was the company of preachers, and he puts the proper emphasis where it belongs. So you'll see very clearly where the foundation is, where the power comes from. The Lord gave the word, and you'll hear it, it's strong. And then you'll see, not that it's, uh, it's, it's just light or anything, but the company of preachers only have authority insofar as the word is given. And this is how God expands his kingdom. Let's listen to Psalm 68, verse 11. Great was 
What we have next in Romans, in Psalm 2 is referred to also, is the the propagation of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, and then the opposition that will necessarily come whenever the gospel is preached, but it'll still go to the ends of the earth and people will still come. So God will continually smash down the, the opposition that comes against his message, and in the end, he wins. Romans 10:15. how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Then Romans 10, verse 18, which is also drawn from Psalm 19, their sound is gone out into all the lands and their words unto the ends of the world. So you see the kingship of Christ extended by the message of the gospel going to the ends of the world. Psalm 2, which is quoted in Acts 4. Remember what happens in Acts 4? That's after Jesus is risen and ascends into heaven and the apostles are starting to bring the word out and many are coming and there is this reaction as Peter preaches and talks and the apostles gather. Why is everybody raging against this message? Because that's what happens when the message is truly preached. There's a rage against it and God subdues hearts to the message. But make no mistake, there is opposition, but with opposition there comes growth. Psalm 2. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? And why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. This is true. This opposition arises. But Psalm 2 also says what the fate of anyone who would rise up against God is. It says, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their yokes from us. In in, in a turn of events, from Jesus being mocked on the cross, you have God now, in a sense, mocking those who oppose him. Psalm 2, verse 4. And he that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. Psalm 2, verse 9. The subduing continues. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Let's listen to this song, the subduing of people to God who try to oppose God. Let's listen to Psalm 2, 3, and these other two verses together in Psalm. Oh, my God. 
decisive victory over the opposition is displayed in these passages as it moves forward, we come to the most famous part of Handel's Messiah. And it's a combination of really uh, three different passages from the book of Revelation. You see them there, uh, Revelation 19 and Revelation 11, and then back to Revelation 19, combining these scriptural truths. Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Please see, the song's not primarily about heaven. It's about King Jesus is subduing everybody and everything to himself in the surety thereof. King of kings and Lord of lords, hallelujah. Of all the stories told, the one that always uh, grabs me the most about the hallelujah chorus is one of the last times uh, Handel was actually to per- able to personally direct it was in front of King George II. Now, the kings of England were very proud, as you can remember from your history lessons. And at this particular time in the 18th century, uh, there was a special move on the part of the kings of England to show their superiority. There was this kind of going back and forth between, uh, between the nation wanting it to move away from monarchy and to the people, so to speak, and the kings establishing, through great tyranny many times, their lordship, if you will. But King George II, when he came to this part of Handel's Messiah, he on his own stood up while the Hallelujah Chorus was sung. Because he recognized, I think, at least for a moment of sanity, who the real King of Kings was. So I think it's for that reason that tradition has moved the people of God to stand often when the Hallelujah Chorus is sung. Let's together stand as we listen to this part of the Word of God sung, the Hallelujah Chorus.
seated. Hallelujah for the victory of Christ. And you know, uh, the story is told that he asked for one meal be given to him in the evening every day for the 24 days in which he wrote Messiah. Uh, but on this particular day and, and other days, I'm sure that meal was uneaten and the servant came up and found Handel laying over his harpsichord saying, I think I have seen the king after he wrote this song. But this isn't the climax. This isn't the best song, in my opinion. There's two more I want to play for you as we go from the reality of the king, the Lord of lords, to how that makes a difference in your life. There are many ways in which Jesus meets you every day, all the time, providentially. His watch care is careful. He loves you. He's intimately involved with you. He doesn't just set things in motion and sit back. He is intimately involved with every aspect of your life. But there's one area of our life that all of us have to confess to dealing with, and that's fear of death and fear of what happens after we die. Now, if you're in Christ, Jesus is as much Lord of your short earthly life as he is of your death and eternity. But here's the reality. Death is awful this side of glory. It feels terrible. It is not at all something joyful. It stings us right now. We know it's ultimately taken away, the sting is. But for now, it's a horrible thing that all of us must deal with. But the reality and the truth of what the Bible teaches and what Jesus has accomplished gives us great comfort. 45, which starts part three, which becomes a great hymn of thanksgiving for the final overthrow of death, meets every one of us where we are. It says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand on the latter day upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. For now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. People will tell you that it gets better after a loved one dies. And as you know, my father died six months ago. It's not true. It doesn't get better. You might forget some things, and that maybe is what they mean, but it does not get better. The only thing that solves it is the truth that goes beyond, and that's the resurrection. And that's what gives real hope and joy, but it's awful for this short span in the bigger scheme, but it's where we're living. It doesn't get better in that respect, but it gets far greater eventually, and we need that truth. And this next song has become very important to me. It's not one that's probably highlighted much in Messiah, but for my personal reasons, it's become very encouraging. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 in song. Listen to what it says. Since by man came death, the reality that we will all die because of Adam's sin in our inheritance of his sin. Then the second part is by man came also the resurrection of the dead. The second Adam, Jesus, undoes what the first Adam did. Then it says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, the song is loud and that's okay. Loud is good. In fact, you have to listen closely because it's sung so low and so darkly since by man came death that it contrasts against the glorious truth of the resurrection. And I love it because it's not just some some superficial kind of flighty sounding uh, song about celebrating resurrection. It's strong and it's firm and it's true and it's what we need to know when we're up against death. And then it goes back slow and uh, quiet again for as in Adam all die. That's a depressing thought. And it comes off depressing. He paints the text perfectly again. And then it climaxes with, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's listen to this wonderful text painting of 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22.
for painting the text. What a beautiful picture. The depressing reality of, of facing death, this side of glory, and then the firm confidence that we will be made alive in Christ. That's what I need to hear. It's the word of God. But let's continue moving quickly, mainly because of that clock back there, uh, through 1 Corinthians. It's the most vivid passage about the reality of resurrection in Christ. And Handel devotes four songs to, well, really five, including this last one, and then partly alluded to in a sixth one, to the resurrection. As we can, uh, really, if you would want to quantify Messiah, it's about the resurrection of Christ ultimately being the practical outflow of redemption and the glory of God manifested in it. But look at the passage that comes next after what we just heard sung. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death shall be swallowed up in victory. That's when the final sense of victory over death will be had at this final resurrection. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then using a verse from Romans, which some totals it all for us. If God could, is for us, who can be against us? And every person of every era could think of who's against us. We're even against ourselves at times. But even you are not stronger than God's love for you. Who could be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. The great climax of Messiah comes in number 53, the song I think that, that is the best. And it sings for us the passage I began with, Revelation 5, 12 through 13. Let's hear this final uh, finale, if you will, of Handel's Messiah.
Let us pray. Father, we are moved by the words of Revelation that tell us the reason uh, that you have redeemed us to yourself through Christ is that Christ might then receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And it is true, O Lord, that blessing and honor, glory and power belong unto you who sit on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let us together respond to what we have heard by singing our